Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me for another uh, brand new All Access here. I'm here with composer Shai Rosov, uh, composer and music editor extraordinaire. Uh, Shai, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. It's so great to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. Thanks for having me. I think the last time the last time I, I saw you was at the was at the Warner Brothers like 2019 like winter party, think, the yeah, holiday party. Was, <clears throat> I think that's the last time that we hung out. That's a long time ago. It's so good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they haven't done those in in a in a while now. I know. Hopefully, if they if they if they do it again this year, then I'll fly back. I know I'm on the East Coast now, but I definitely would want to come back for that. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath. Warner Brothers are no. one of the most strict studios. So, our studio just we're under Warner Brothers. Our studio just started doing optional for for people to come back in. So we'll we'll see oh, we'll nice. see how it goes. <laughs> um, but let's uh let's uh, not delay anymore. <laughs> let's jump into talking about you. So I would love to start uh, talking about kind of your, your background. Talk to me about your childhood growing up in Israel and how did you find music? When did it enter your life? And when did you decide to pursue this as a career? Um, well, to skip forward and answer your second question, I decided to pursue it kind of late. But um, so growing up in Israel, when I was in kindergarten, my parents made me take piano lessons. I hated it. Um, I was a brat. I managed to annoy my teacher enough to where they're like, we can't teach this kid. So my parents found another teacher and I did the same and they found another teacher and I did the same until eventually they're like, okay, this isn't working. <laughs> um, but the, we had this upright piano that was just sitting around and I think it was, I can't remember if it was like third, fourth, fifth grade, somewhere in the elementary school. Um, I remember coming into school uh, on a Sunday. Israel was on a Sunday to Friday week, um, different than here. <clears throat> and found out that on Saturday, the day before, one of my classmates' dad had a heart attack and passed away suddenly. Oh, wow. And... You know, I can only imagine what he and his family went through, but I know it hit me hard. Yeah. And I went home and just opened the piano and wrote my first song. And I think it was a way of just coping with the feelings and, and whatever. Sure. Yeah, just processing. Yeah. And, yep. And from then on, I just started messing with the piano and... Pretty soon I was begging my dad to buy me a synth because this is, you know, what was it? 80s, you know, and synths were cool, you know, <laughs> like I want the Roland and I want the this and I want that drum machine and, you know, all those things. And my dad was like, nope, 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 until eventually he <laughs> relented and I got my first synth. Um, and I just started messing around with that and then I got into sequencing and then they were all like, and this was when we didn't even have computers yet. It was an actual sequencer box where you'd arm the sequencer and you'd play it in. And then if you were happy, you could rearm it and play on top of it. And if you're happy with that, you could rearm it and you kept adding to it. And if you screwed up, start over. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And there was a lot of starting over because I'm a terrible keyboard player. <laughs> um, and But I started collecting some gear and stuff. And eventually I got my first 
music computer, which is the Atari ST. And I got Master Tracks Pro, which no longer exists. And that was my sequencer of choice. And I refused to take lessons. I, I just wanted to do my thing. And I was just writing a lot of instrumental music, just crappy electronic instrumentals and not very good songs. <clears throat> um, and like all Israelis, after you finish high school, you go in the army. So I went in the army and it wasn't until I was reaching the end of my service that I was trying to think, okay, what do I do with my life? And uh, my dad was very much for me going into computer sciences and being a computer programmer. Mm. I had a bit of a knack for that. I had done some of that just as an amateur. Um, I loved animals. I used to do work as a veterinary assistant for a little bit. So oh, wow. The, the alternative, and my mom was pushing. She's like, well, if you don't want to do the computer thing, go be a veterinarian. Yeah. And I realized, but I'm a composer. It's not a choice. It's just who I am. It's what I am. And, it, and I can go do any job in the world. I will always be a composer. So why not try to do that as my job? So I applied for music school in Israel by some miracle got in. Um, uh, and that's where I learned how to read and write music for the first time. Because um, when I was in kindergarten, I couldn't read or write music. You know, it was just yeah. learned by, I, I remember they had like colored stickers on the keys and you went by colors and things. But um, so, yeah, I got into it seriously very, very late. And then uh, some people from Berkeley College of Music were visiting and offering to audition people for scholarships. And I was like, but I'm a composer. Let me show you my stuff. And they're like, well, play us your stuff. But I can't play very well. But let me give you my stuff. And I kind of harassed them day in and day out until eventually they're like, look, we're leaving tomorrow. We're here till 5 p.m. If you can get us 20 minutes of music, including at least one orchestral piece, some other works of yours, lead sheets, recordings, the whole shebang, we'll take it back with us and we'll see what happens. Well, <clears throat> I said, okay, no problem. I went home, pulled an all-nighter, wrote my first orchestral piece ever before even taking Orchestration 101. So wow. I didn't know about transpositions. I didn't know instrument ranges. The thing started with a low A on an oboe that doesn't exist on the instrument. <laughs> it's just, it was awful. But I wrote an or, like a five-minute orchestral piece overnight. Um, I had just two, three weeks prior, I'd recorded a demo. So I created lead sheets for that demo. Um, and I showed up at about quarter to five in the afternoon. Uh, the next day, I was like, here you go. Um, and they gave me a partial scholarship and to this day, I'm pretty sure they gave me the scholarship, not for the quality of the work, but for the fact that I did it, you know, I, yeah, I think yeah. it was, I think what impressed them was like, okay, this guy wants it bad enough that he pulled an all night or skipped school all day and made this happen overnight. Um, <clears throat> so I went to Berkeley, um, Spent five semesters there, got my degree, um, and then came out to LA broke and with practically no connections and yeah. started knocking on doors, expecting to be 
to last maybe two, three weeks. And, you know, here we are 20, almost 25 years later and still here. That's, that's amazing. I mean, I did the same thing. I, I, I came out, you know, I didn't have any parents or help or anybody to connect. I just, me and my friends after film school were like, let's just jump in our cars and go. And we did it. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's something to being young and stupid and fearless and oblivious to the realities of how insane that proposition really is. hundred percent. Yeah. You know, it, it's, there's something to, being completely clueless to how unlikely and unreasonable it is to think you're just going to come out there and make it. Yep. Because <laughs> yeah. most of us don't. It's not a reasonable thing to expect. Oh, and it's a tough but city. I, LA is very tough. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But I was just young and reckless and stupid. And I just came out here. I was like, I'm going to make it. And that's all there is to it. And somehow I did. <laughs> And here we are. Very, very grateful for that. <laughs> well, you you have made it. You, you, you're an amazing composer. Um, before we jump into your Thank solo you. work, I do want to talk a little bit about music editing because you're also a prolific music editor in the business. And mm -hmm. uh, I think not a lot of people know what that job is and what, what a music editor does and the relationship to the composer and, of course, on the project. So I'd love to just touch on it briefly. And if you had to define, you know, to some, or just describe what a music editor is to somebody, what would you tell them? What is your job description essentially when you're a music editor? I've been asked that a lot and there is no single answer because okay. a music editor can be so many different things in different scenarios under different contexts. Um, you have, there's the part of it that's temp score. So if anybody's watching that doesn't know what a temp score is, Usually when we're working on films before there is even a composer or sometimes concurrent with the composer starting to work, there's a music editor who's finding pre-existing music, usually from other films, but it can be from anything, and cutting it to picture to create a temporary score so that as they're working on the film, it feels more like a film. Because if you've ever watched a film without music, it's difficult to watch. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so there's that side of music editing. Um, and most composers hate temp scores. That's um, usually the consensus, yeah. Yeah, because I think a lot of temp scores, they, they try to be really great, which is hard to do. And there are some music editors out there that do an incredible job at it. But whether they're a great temp score or a bad temp score, you have a filmmaker who's cutting day in and day out. They get used to it. And now doing something different is hard. I've been in situations where we're rushing, we cut something in, we're like, well, it's good enough for now, we'll change it later. Um, by the time later comes, they're so used to it, they love it. And they forget that they never liked it in the first place. They got used to it. <laughs> So temp love is a very real thing. And my approach to temp scoring is, A, I always try to find out who the composer will be if they know, or if not, budget-wise, what's gonna be possible. Right. So if I'm working on a small indie and they have like a $20,000 package deal for a composer, I'm not gonna temp it with John Williams and Hans Zimmer. 
because that is just setting the composer up to fail. Um, wow, I never really thought about that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I'm I'm always trying to be aware of what's realistic, and I try to create a temp score that's realistic to what the composer is going to be able to do. Um, because it's really not fair. Early in my career, I had the experience of cutting something, and it was it just kicked ass. It was awesome. And we're on the dub stage, and the music from the scene's going on, and the director's going, no, 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 no. This, this is the wrong music. It was better. And he was thinking about the temp rather than the final, because the temp was better than the final. Wow. And it's an awful situation to be in, because once he realizes, oh, shit, yeah, that, oh, am I allowed to say that? Oh, you can it shit, is, you can curse, whatever. Is, uh, <laughs> he realizes that he likes the temp better than the final and that the final isn't as good. It's disappointing, and it will stay disappointing forever. And that's a terrible feeling. It's a, And I felt terrible for putting the director in that situation, for putting the composer in that situation, because he then thought less of the composer. He's like, ah, this composer didn't deliver. And the temp I put in was to, you know, a massive budget, unlimited kind of top of the line thing. And this is like a $20 million movie. And we recorded 20 strings. And what I had in there was full orchestra. And, you know, like probably that cue cost about as much as our entire score cost, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's really not fair to do that to composers. So I always try very much to be cognizant of who's going to be composing and what kind of score is possible and to temp within those parameters. I also try to think of the temp score as a blueprint for the composer. So it should have it should do all the right things in all the right places, but be easy to beat. Which actually right. makes it kind of harder to temp because sometimes I'm like, oh my God, this is perfect. And sometimes I'm like, it's a little too perfect. It's going to be hard to beat. Let me see if I can find something else that does the same but isn't as good. Because I want to set the composer up to succeed, not to fail. And if you can do that and have a great blueprint, then the temp score can be the composer's best friend. Because it can be a great communication tool. Because talking about music is really hard. It's yeah. subjective. It's it's not something tangible. So people use colors, shapes, things, whatever. Like it's difficult to describe when you have a temp and you can say, okay, so this is too fast, and I love that sound, but that thing doesn't work. That's very specific, and it's very useful as a communication tool. So I think if a temp is done with that in mind and the composer receives it, understanding that's it, and the filmmaker, if everybody's on that page, then a temp score can be a composer's best friend. Mm. But if the temp is something that they fall in love with and now they just want you to basically copy it, it can be your worst enemy. And I understand why so many composers hate them. What I always try to do is figure out what is the temp doing that they're loving? What is it providing for them? And then I try to find my own way to do that. And so far, I've been pretty successful at it because I'm very bad at copying temps. I'm very bad at copying other people. Yeah. Um, yet people seem to 
hire me back over and over again, so which means they either don't know anybody else or I must be doing something right. <laughs> but like oh, I remember yeah. one of my first, one of my earlier features, the director at first wanted almost no music. And then he was talking to me about all this aleatoric orchestral music. And I was like, we don't have the budget for that. And the only way I could do that is by holding down buttons on existing samples and layering things. That doesn't interest me. But what if I do a completely electronic score and create a whole new soundscape that emotionally does the same thing? He was like, well, I guess so you can try it. And I wrote a demo and he was like, oh yeah, this is cool. And then I ended up doing a completely electronic score. Nothing like the temp, nothing like what we discussed. But emotionally, it hit all those same moments. Wow. So to me, that's the magic of composing. When you can figure out what is it that they're getting out of it, and then do your version of it rather than just copying a temp. <coughs> um, yeah, it reminds me of a... Um... Because I was a, I was at some screening when Nicholas Winding Refn was with Cliff Martinez and they were talking about Neon Demon and he was like, oh yeah, I tempt this completely with like Bernard Herrmann and you know Cliff's style, it's completely synth and electronic and he's like, I, mm -hmm. I knew he was not going to copy that yet, but I wanted the emotional kind of tone of that and then Cliff just took it and exactly. did his thing, yeah. Well, and if you know that, that's a great thing to do because you can do something that emotionally gives you everything you need. And you know the composer is going to do something completely different. And you know that the expectation is for something completely different. But the temp can be a roadmap to where you need music, what the music needs to hit, what moments to highlight, what moments to ignore, things like that. Right. Um, so I think temps can be a great communication tool and a great help um, if used right. And even if they fall in love with the temp, I think still there's ways of going, okay, let me understand what is it about it that you've fallen in love with and give you my version of that. And so far I've been successful with that. Um, so that's a big part of music editing. Another part is a lot of music editors just work with composers and there's like ongoing relationships. Um, you know, people who have been with the same composer for many, many years. Um, and there it can really change from composer to composer and based on the relationship, some composers are more self-sufficient, some rely on their music editors for more. It can be, usually you're kind of sort of like a project manager. You're helping, first thing is spotting notes. You're there at the spotting session. You create the spotting notes. Whenever a new picture comes in, you're updating the spotting notes. And here's where it can change from composer to composer. Some composers are like, just give me the new numbers. Other composers are like, I need you to tell me what changed and where. So I, I'll have composers that I've worked with and I'll make, okay, this cue is now 12 seconds and four frames shorter. You lost about a beat and a half at measure 12. You lost another two beats at measure 17. And like very specific. Other people yeah. are like, just give me the timings, I'll handle it. I've had composers that are like, once they've written it, they don't touch it. And it's up to me to conform afterwards, um, including before we score. And the first time they hear the conformed version is as we're recording it on the scoring stage. Wow. That's the first time they look at the new picture. I've had composers like that too. Um, so it, it runs the gambit. 
I have composers that want me at meetings. I have composers that don't do meetings and it's like, here's the demo, please make a quick time, send it to the client. So I'm the go-between. I've had composers that are like, thanks for the spotting notes. I'll see you at the scoring session. And then there's practically nothing, mm. you know, very self-sufficient. It runs the gamut um, and how much you can do or not do help or not help. But I love the collaborations where I am at the meetings and I am part of the conversation because sometimes you get notes and the composer gets, and I'm guilty of it when I'm composing too, we get stuck in the composition. And as an outsider who's a music editor, I'm like, oh, well, if you cut this and move this here and then just do that, that should solve it. And sometimes when I see they're struggling, I can go, hey, can we just try something real quick? And I've been in places where I'm like, I'll jump on Pro Tools, do a quick little edit. It's like, is this closer to what you're thinking? And they're like, oh, my God, yes, perfect. And the composer afterwards will go, oh, my God, I thought I was going to have to completely rewrite this. This is an easy fix. I can do this in 10 minutes. Wow. So you can be valuable in that regard. Then once the score is recorded, uh, especially working on bigger films, picture keeps changing. So now it's up to you to conform and make everything work. Sometimes directors change their minds and... On my first big major feature film, I was an assistant music editor. Richard Ford was the music editor. Amazing dude. The film was Training Day. And towards the end of the film, there's the big fight scene on the rooftops and jumping from balcony to balcony and everything. And it was a big action cue. Yeah. And we're mixing it. And Antoine, the director, goes, this isn't really working for me. And what you hear in the movie, which is all really dark, tense movie and music instead, that was all cut by Richard Ford using bits and pieces from other cues from the score. And sometimes things like that happen as well. And I've been in the position to rework things drastically on a scoring stage. Um, and also on the scoring stage, I'm not just serving the film, but it's also my job to protect the music and yeah. represent you. Something I've noticed a lot of filmmakers do um, is they'll say something like, oh, can you move the trumpet here? Not to pick on trumpets, but I'm thinking of a specific example. And I try to get in their head and I realize, oh, it's stepping on the dialogue. So they want me to mute the trumpet because it's stepping on the dialogue. But if I mute the trumpet, it really takes away from the impact of the cue. So I can go and recut it and move it a little bit so that the trumpet is now in the holes between the words. It's no longer stepping on the dialogue. The cue still maintains its impact, but I've solved the filmmaker's problem. And my favorite compliment that I've ever gotten from a filmmaker was I had a showrunner on a TV show. And at the end of the TV series, he said to me, you know what? You never give me what I ask for, but you always give me what I need. And I love that because he would ask for things in a very specific way because that's the best solution he can think of right. to what's bothering him. But I can usually think of a different solution or a better solution, which achieves the result but also protects the music and the integrity of the music um so that's part of being a music editor 
Um, and then there's the paperwork, doing cue sheets, things like that. So people get paid their royalties properly, all the deliverables. Um, you know, sometimes you're a bit of a psychologist. Sometimes you're the middleman, you know. Yeah, I know that. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you can be the bad guy so that the composer doesn't have to be. And, you know, so they can kind of stay above it all. And they're just all fluffy clouds and happiness and you're the one that's being a little bit difficult in order to protect them so they don't have to um so it, it can encompass a lot of different things and then of course there's songs yeah. so when you have to cut songs and make them fit the scene perfectly and um sometimes there's a song in mind the scene is cut to a song and then you can't clear it and you have to replace it and you have to make the new thing fit and make it feel like it was always designed to be in that spot when it wasn't. Um, if you're working on musicals, there's a lot of pre-production stuff to do and how to plan the shoot. Sometimes being on set, um, you know, making sure all the sync and all of those kinds of things are right. So it can encompass a lot of different things. Absolutely. I mean, that, I mean, uh, thank you for explaining all of that because I, I, I never realized some of those uh, aspects of it. And I've, I've talked to music editors and it, and yeah, that seems like you're, whether from the, I mean, being on set or being a, kind of like a, a representative for the composer, protecting the music and also helping finish the vision of the, the filmmakers. It seems like it's a lot to actually, <laughs> especially if you're yeah, working on a big, big and, budget film. And sometimes you're doing all of those things. Sometimes your role is just one of those things. There are people who sometimes, I've been on films where I did the temp and then when the they had a composer, the composer brought his or her own music editor in, and that was the end of my role. I've had films where I've done the temp and worked with the composer. I've had films where somebody else did the temp and I only come in with the composer. Mm -hmm. um, I've never done it, but I've been on films where there's so much to do, where there's one person working on the score, somebody else working on the songs. I've been on projects where they have music a music editor or sometimes more than one dealing with the film and everything and I'm just the composer's music editor and I'm just the conduit between the composer and the other music editors and the directors so it can it can be so many different things and sometimes you're all of them sometimes you're just one part of it uh, the cool thing about it is that you're always part of a team and yeah that I like a lot because when you're composing you're mostly by yourself in a room with your computer talking to or yourself. Your, or your Muppets behind you. <laughs> or your my studio assistants, yes. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? it's it's as a music editor, I'm talking to a lot more people a lot more often. I deal with mixers, with orchestrators, uh, with music prep, sometimes with contractors, with studio execs, with directors, with producers, with picture editors, assistant editors. I talk to a lot more people as a music editor than I do as a composer. <clears throat> I can, I can, so, yeah, I'm, absolutely. I, I can imagine. <laughs> so I like that part of it a lot. And I like helping other people do, hopefully, if I'm doing my job well, I'm helping a composer be better than they might be otherwise. You know, because again, having the experience of both, sometimes you're so into the music that you get caught up in a moment and you're, you lose track a little bit of how it fits within the bigger picture. 
Sure. You're so yeah. obsessed with it, but this is so cool. And it's like, yeah, it is. But if you did this, it would work better for picture. And sometimes you need an outside voice to help nudge you a little bit to make you better. And I love when I have the opportunity to, to do that for others. Absolutely, for sure. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's jump into we, you know we thank you for walking through that. That's that was fascinating um, to just learn all the ins and outs of music editing. Let's jump into composing, which is you're a composer and you're a storyteller, and I love your music and I love your style. So I would love thank to just you. start off by asking. I love to ask composers the same question because I feel like it always generates a different response. But for you, just in a, in general, before we jump into your projects. Where does the first note come from for you? Where do you like to gravitate towards to get that pen pull out the first idea from your head? Do you like to tinker on the piano? Do you like to talk to the filmmaker? If you're on film early enough, you're lucky to be, you can read the script or you wait for the first lock picture. Like, what do you um, like to, for your process? I'm sure it'll be different for every film, but like kind of where do you gravitate towards normally? For me, it, it tends to actually be surprisingly kind of the same. For me, it's watching the first cut of the film. And okay. it can be an assembly. It can be like, like I've a work watched, print or something. Yeah. I've watched assemblies that are way too long. You know, I've watched like a two and a half hour assembly of what's going to be an hour and a half movie. But for me, it's seeing it because it's all from the performances, from the visuals, the design, the colors, the types of shots. It all comes from the visual storytelling for me. Um, I've had situations where I've gotten a script early on and I've tried to write to the script and then I get the picture and it doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah. I once wrote one of my favorite pieces that I've ever written was written to a script. And then I got the film and I'm like, there is no place in this film for this piece of music, which was such a bummer because I really liked the piece of music. <laughs> But I'm like, what I had in my head from the from reading it versus what I'm looking at were two completely different things. And the director loved the music as well. And we ended up with a very, very different score, which he loved as well. And it worked out. But I have not had good luck writing to scripts or to anything else. I need a visual. I have on occasion received um storyboards or some still shots when they're not quite ready to share actual stuff with me but for me it's very visual i need to see what what it's going to look like <clears throat> um and then usually what'll happen is i'll just start hearing music in my head and in general and i when i'm composing i don't feel like i'm composing i feel like i'm transcribing it's like I okay. hear it in my head and it's fully formed. And I'm like, get it down quickly before you lose it. Just what, what was that thing that you heard? And it feels like I'm transcribing, not composing, which is kind of a weird feeling. And then if I think it's any good, then I'm panicking that I actually am transcribing something that I once heard versus writing original music. And yeah, it's happened to me that, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, 50 bars into something before I realize, oh, wait, that's Beethoven's violin concerto. Whoops. Um, that can happen. And when I'm afraid of that, I'll send it around to friends and I'm like, have you heard this before? And if enough of them say no, then I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe I wrote something good. Um, 
but it's really weird. I, I have this insecurity. Plus, I've heard so much music because I'm a music editor. I, there's music I've heard that I have forgotten, but it's in there somewhere. So It's in your subconscious, and you don't know if you're tapping into that. <laughs> exactly. I always have this fear, did I just accidentally copy something without knowing that I copied it? Something that I have heard and forgotten. Because I'm exposed to a ton of music as a music editor. You know, I mean, just um, my personal library has over 3,000 scores, and I've heard all of them. So, wow. You know, That's a lot. <laughs> it is. It is. I spend, I don't have as much time now to just listen to music like I used to, but especially earlier in my career, and still today when I'm between projects, if I'm flying or things like that, I'm listening to new music constantly. Yeah, um, and then your brain is a sponge; it just absorbs it. And yeah, and it yeah. all comes in, and and you're influenced by it. And it's like sometimes I'll do something, and I'll go, "Oh, that sounds kind of Elfman-esque." Am I copying Danny? And no, but I worked with the guy for 15 years. I'm influenced by him, you know. Or it doesn't matter what you hear. I think the magic is to to take all the different influences that you've had and then something comes out that you're clearly standing on the shoulders of all of these, but you're not copying them. It's right. your morphing of all these things that have affected you and something new comes out. Um, and when you're successful at that, it's magic and it's the best feeling in the world. I know it's as when you like when it comes out and especially when you know that you crack something and it fits and and you have that that feeling inside that's definitely yeah for sure yeah although I've also had that feeling inside and then you play it for the director and the director just goes no <laughs> that's part of the job too because again music is subjective home. yeah so, so you go home and you curl up in the fetal position and you cry and you I might be exaggerating slightly but you kind of go shit and then you go, okay, I'm a professional. Next. And you figure out what was it that didn't work for them? What feedback did you get? And come up with something new. And hopefully you love it just as much. Um, Absolutely. You know, but that's part of the game. That's the difference between writing concert music or doing it for fun versus being a professional. It's never about the music. It's all about the film. It's all about the storytelling. And musically, I can tell any story probably literally a hundred different ways. And yeah. Bring in sure. other people and they'll do it a hundred different ways. So it's about finding the right way for the filmmakers that you're working with. Not, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's never about you. It's never about the music. It's about, the, it's about the story and about the filmmaker's vision and style and approach for the story. And hopefully you can bring something in that lifts it, augments it, makes it better. Um, but it's yeah, I, think, I think a lot of great filmmakers realize the power of music. And, and, uh, and I know there's always stories of like crazy filmmakers or directors <laughs> and producers that are, you know, super control freaks. But if, when you have a really good collaborative relationship with a composer and the director, those are the ones that I, the stories I love hearing about. And it becomes, yeah, you're servicing. And I just uh, completed uh, some uh, liner notes. I can't 
reveal what they are yet, but uh, we were talking with the director and the composer at the same time, and the director was describing, yeah, you it becomes a beast that's no longer, it's like, it's a vision that you have to now serve, you know, it's like, okay, what does the movie need? What does the, the story need? And mm -hmm. everyone has to yeah. bow down to the film and it's no longer like, oh, what do I want? What do I want to put in? It's like, what does the film actually need? I worked on a film once and the most beautiful shot in the entire film ended up on the cutting room floor. And everybody mm -hmm. loved that shot. It was gorgeous. But at the end of the day, when the film was cut together, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't helping. Yeah, the editing process, that, that always fascinates me where the, the, the stuff that you is your personal favorite, if it's not right for the movie, if it's not yeah. forwarding the story or you know doing anything meaningful, then yeah, it's gotta go. <laughs> yeah, or I've written scores, like my general approach is I wanna have the least amount of music necessary to tell the perfect story. I don't want mm. one note too many, one note too few. Um, and there's a great deal of self-editing in my work. However, when spotting and scoring, I tend to overscore and provide music for stuff that ends up being taken out because I'd rather okay. give the filmmaker the option and yeah. then argue why it's not needed than not have it and want it. Okay. Um, so, I remember I worked on this uh, independent movie called Jasmine, and it was uh, the director's first movie, Dax Phelan, wonderful guy, loved working with him. And the more I wrote, the more music he wanted. And I ended up writing over 70 minutes of music for a film that's not that long. Wow. Um, I, I think the film is barely 90 minutes or something. Um, and I remember having so many conversations with him saying, dude, once you have your sound design and everything, you're not going to need this music. And I was fighting to not write music because it just, I knew it wasn't necessary, but he wanted it. I wrote it. I created it. It existed. And I think once he was on the dub stage and had the sound design and had everything, he realized that he didn't need a lot of the music. I think there's only like 32, 33 minutes of score in the film. Wow. Yeah. I think just over half of what I wrote never made it into the film. But he needed it as part of his process. Um, and he would never have gotten to where he got had I not written it for him in the first place. And that's fine. Or sometimes you write something and it's perfect, but you have your doubts or the filmmaker has their doubts. And you do 12 more versions only to go back to the very first one and realize that was the one but sometimes you have to take the journey in order to know that where you were was the right place and that's okay too you know it's yeah it's, it's a, it's part a of process it. it's a discovery yeah yeah yep. <laughs> well let's jump into some of your projects i know you're, you're yep. tomorrow you're flying off for the premiere of uh the last of the winthrops which yep. is a, a fascinating documentary about vivian winthrop and her discovering that she lived most of her life, you know, she's a middle-aged woman and realizes, oh, I am this, not my biological parents. And she's now gonna grapple with her own self-identity. She's not part of this lineage she thought she was part of. So talk about a working, and she's also a co-director and she's a subject of the film, which I thought was very interesting. Right. Talk about working with her and what you found so compelling about this story and how you approached it musically. 
Well, when I first heard about it, a friend referred me. Um, her producer called me, told me about it. I asked if I could see an early cut. They sent me a very early cut. And about five minutes in, I was like, okay, I'm hooked. Um, because it's a fascinating story. Because if you don't know the Winthrop family, her great, 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 however many great grandfather, John Winthrop, helped found Massachusetts, was the first governor of Massachusetts. Yeah. Members of her family were literally part of the founding generations of the United States of America. Eventually, a lot of her family moved to Canada. But she's got this incredibly long lineage in history, and the name Winthrop is in the history books. When I was working on the film, my son was learning American history, and he goes, Hey, Dad, is this the same Winthrop? I'm learning about this John Winthrop from Massachusetts. I'm like, Yep, same dude. <laughs> so her family's literally in the history books. And I think she was 48 or 49 when she found out that her father is not her biological dad. Yeah. Um, she did a, she did like an ancestry DNA test thing and somebody, her half sister did one too and found her. And apparently her half sibling knew about her for years and years and years and has been searching for her. Um, wow. But she had no clue. Her parents never told her. So imagine how that just completely yeah. turns your world upside down. And who am I? And how do you identify yourself? Am I still a Winthrop? Am I not a Winthrop? Am I like, am I part of this? Am I not? What's this other side? Who are all these new people now that it's a completely different world? So it raised a lot of questions. I think we can all identify with the idea of who am I? Yeah, whether you I mean, had just your identity as a human being, yeah. <clears throat> whether you've had a crazy experience like this or not, we all do. But with me also, um, my wife's adopted and her biological family found her when she was an adult. So hearing her stories and how she relates to that was interesting. Her brother is also adopted and he does not know his biological family. And so hearing his perspective. So uh, not me personally, but through my wife and my brother-in-law, I felt like, oh, there's a connection. And I, I could relate to this idea of surprise. There's more. Yeah. Um, also, my father has an interesting story where I think he was like 71, 72, something like that. He was looking into trying to maybe get an EU passport. He knew he was born in Russia and uh, in Siberia, actually. And he was looking into seeing if he can get his birth certificate to try to get an EU passport. And he found his birth certificate. And his birth date was a month later than he had celebrated his birthday his entire life. That that would blow my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and it completely screwed him up. Yeah. And for a while, he was all messed up. And then when his birthday came up, he was miserable. Because he's like, this is my birthday, but it's not my birthday. And then the new date came up, and, and it, which claims he's a month younger than he thought he was. And he's like, well, this doesn't feel like my birthday. And so it really messed with him. And then he's like, I would have been in a different class if I, because his birthday is December 27th and the new one said January 27th of the following oh, year. Wow. And growing up in Israel at his age, things broke down by calendar year. So 
he would have been with completely different kids and for, from first grade on, people that are still his childhood friends today. He's like, my entire life would have been different. And it really screwed with him. So I could relate through his experience a little bit to her experience, even though it's different. So those things all attracted me. Since then, my uncle found a third birth certificate for my father that has him, I think it was, it's February or something. So he's like, I don't know, but I will accept celebrations and presents on all of the dates above. <laughs> so he's now go. like yeah i'll celebrate all of them it's all good but it really messed with him for a while and i could see that i mean if you find out something about yourself that is not what you thought your entire life that's going to mess with you so i thought that was fascinating i like the historical aspect of it and the heritage and that was fascinating i I could semi-relate to that a little bit because I grew up in a family in Israel that was very well-known within Israel. My grandfather is one of the, he's like of the founding generation of the country. And, you know, he would hang out with people like Golda Meir and prime ministers and, wow. you know, and ministers and stuff. And it's like, I was surrounded by that. Our, our, when people heard my family name in Israel, they immediately knew who I was or who my family was. So I had a little taste of that kind of an experience growing up. Um, so I could relate to that side of it. So I just felt a lot of connection to the story in the film. <clears throat> and then as she and I spoke about it, um, I, we wanted to do something that somehow nods to the history. And there is talk about the history and she does go travel to Europe and to all these places to learn more about that part of her heritage before reaching out and meeting her new biological family. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to give a taste of history and heritage and grandeur. Um, we wanted it to be very cinematic and there's some beautiful drone shots and really nice cinematography that makes it feel very cinematic, even though it's a documentary. So we wanted the score to do that, which was a really fun opportunity. Um, but I wanted to give it the taste of history while staying very modern and contemporary. So I ended up, um, I reached out to somebody um, who plays viola da gamba and Baroque cello and kind of learned the instrument. And I wrote what is to me a very contemporary score but there are key moments where I incorporate the gamba. Oh, wow. Um, and we tried the Baroque cello. Vivian didn't like the sound of the Baroque cello as much as the gamba. So we ended up going with the gamba. But so you have, it never tries to sound like Renaissance music or Baroque music or anything like that. It sounds like contemporary music, but you have that color in there. I have recorders in there on occasion. Um, <clears throat> there's the story of the family at some point moving from Canada to Sedona for warmer, better weather and stuff. And you have these beautiful red desert cliffs in Sedona and stuff. So I have some Native American flutes going on. And again, it's like, I'm not trying to sound Native American. I'm just trying to give a color. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I thought that was fun because like if you listen to a score like Outlander, which uses gamba a lot, it's super cool and it sounds 
fresh, but whenever he uses those instruments, Barry does an amazing job, but it does very much feel historical, intentional. Absolutely, like, that show needs it, yeah. I was like, how do I get that sound without making it feel historical, but it gives it that extra layer? How do I stay contemporary but have that thing? So that was the challenge. And then how do I get big and grand and cinematic? And there's a whole scene where we're talking about the, what the family went through during World War II, for example. And I'm like, I'm scoring World War II and Nazis and you know war and the things that went there. It's like, how, how do I channel my Saving Private Ryan without sounding anything like Saving Private Ryan, but having that weight of the worst war the world has ever seen? Absolutely, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So th those were all challenging and interesting things that really attracted me to it. And then there's places where it's just solo piano. And how do you connect it all and make it all sound cohesive? Um, so that that was all. Those were all things that I saw when I watched it, and I was like, "Ooh, th this is such a rich playground to create a score for a documentary that I think doesn't sound like a typical documentary score. Um, it doesn't really sound like a typical narrative score either. It's kind of a hybrid of the two, I think." That's what, um, those are the best. I know, and I and you sent me the album, and it's it's a beautiful score. I I, I love it. Oh, and thank you. Yeah, and it's uh, and I've I've had a few other composers who because you, I know when you say documentary, you you immediately think of music that stays in the background, right? You think of music that doesn't try to call too much attention, not as so melodic because you don't want to stumble upon a lot of talking heads and stuff. But there are you can make it work and make it something that feels a little bit more has a little bit more personality, and it's not just kind of simmering under the surface and i think your score has kind of like a lyrical quality to it and, and it just it, it it really tells the story and hits the emotions i think really well oh thank you well we did one thing that was really important was developing the winthrop theme mm -hmm. and then we have sort of what we call the mother theme and that was actually an adaptation um Vivian sent me this recording of, I think it was her grandmother or something like that, I forget, had recorded this original piece of music back in the 60s. It was a terrible, oh, wow. really crappy recording. And I transcribed it, and then I asked a friend of mine to perform it for her, so she has a nice, clean recording of it. Wow. And so <clears throat> I was actually able to incorporate fragments of that as sort of the mother slash her theme, not within the context of Winthrop's, but just the nuclear family. So you have that thematic material. Then you have the Winthrop theme kind of idea. Um, and then I created sort of this motif for the new family that she meets and her that biological family and i drop hints of it throughout the score um so there, there's places where you have these little moments where things are alluded to but not yet revealed and yeah. musically it's there just as it would be in a narrative feature um and then at the end as we're reaching it's the second to last cue which is this big sort of everything comes together both themes play on top of each other together that like the one becomes counterpoint for the other 
um, which is again a very narrative approach, not necessarily a documentary. Yeah, approach. I mean you're building that, up that to, really fun to yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that was really fun to do and really challenging. And I actually, when I scored it, uh, it was over a year ago. So we we're mid shutdown pandemic, so everything was recorded remotely. Um, uh, one of the fun things on this that I hadn't done before is I wrote from multiple pianos and it was all the same player overdubbing, but there are some cues where there's four passes of piano. I'd never written like that before, Wow! Um, but it made for some really interesting textures and sounds. And there's, there's places where it's like, he's doing a pattern in this range and then another pattern in a different range. And then there's a melody and then there's some low stuff to support the drama and there you go, four parts for a piano, piano for eight hands. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, and I'd never done that before, so that was really fun. Um, yeah, I, I'm really proud of the score. I, I'm proud of the film, and I hope it can find an audience and distribution. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating of, story. Yeah, best of luck at the at the premiere, <laughs> and you know, it, it, I think these small films, you know, they're so such passion projects, especially when you have the subject as the, the filmmaker as well. And, and such a personal story to, for someone to put their entire life, you know, open up and be that vulnerable and to have you have to come in and, you know, you're also dealing with someone's personal history, their family. And I'm sure that adds a lot more weight than a regular fictional narrative. Yeah. And I mean, imagine the presence of mind. Vivian is a dentist. That's her profession. And she realizes what just occurred to her. And in the middle of all this turbulence of her life, she goes, there's a story to be told here. I'm going to make a documentary movie about what I'm going through. Imagine the presence of mind in the middle of all this to recognize that. And then a dentist knows nothing about filmmaker. And she's like, well, I'm just gonna make it happen and she did yeah that's, that's so impressive part. you know it's like oh my god that is so impressive and that was yeah. also part of what attracted me to it is it's like i would never think to do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so when you if you're a young filmmaker out there and you're making excuses not to get out there and make something i mean you hear a story like that where pick up your iphone and go <laughs> yeah everyone has a 4k camera in their pocket uh you can make i mean Sean Baker is a great inspiration as well. I mean, he shot that beautiful film Tangerine on an iPhone 6. Steven Soderbergh has done it. So, I mean, no excuses. <laughs> I have, you know what? I love underwater photography. I'm a scuba diver. I yeah, have, I know you're, you're a big diver. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have like a semi-pro camera with a big enclosure and stuff. And on this last movie I was doing, the director, he's also an avid diver. And he's showing me pictures of his phone on his phone. I was like, Oh my God, these are amazing. And I'm like, what'd you take them on? He goes, my phone. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he turned me on. There's now a company that makes scuba diving enclosures for phones. Yep. I and saw he those. has one of them. And he's taking these amazing pictures with his phone underwater. That, that rival anything I've seen professionally. So yeah, they, there is absolutely no excuse for anybody to not just do it today anymore. Like we, we, we all have the ability, um, if you have the will, you can find a way. 
100%. You know, it's not like 10, 15 years ago where I can't afford $30,000 worth of gear. You know, you, it's in your pocket. You can do it. 100%. Yeah. And I, it's and the I, same and, for music. Yeah. I mean, I was the last, <laughs> when I graduated film school, I was the last class that, that used 16 millimeter. And then they're just like, oh, we're switching everything to digital. I was like, oh, fun. So and everything I learned is like, whoop, gone. <laughs> Well, well, when I was introduced to music editing in school, uh, music editing 101, I was the last class at Berkeley that learned how to cut on mag. So I learned how to cut <laughs> on an upright moviola and on a 16 millimeter chem and Pro Tools version 3.2 all at the same time, which actually helped me a lot in my career because starting out, one of the ways I got a bit of a reputation in town was I was very good at explaining digital to analog people who were struggling with the transition. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, like even simple things like the cursor going from left to right, where on a cam the film goes from right to left, and it drove them nuts. And I would be like, okay, imagine you take two thousand feet of film, spread it out, and instead of running the film over the music head, you're moving the head over the film. Which way will it go? They go left to right, and I'm like, and that's your cursor. Oh, okay, that makes sense. But because I learned it all together, it all made sense to me, and I was able to translate analog to digital. And a lot of how I got my start was that, because a lot of music editors were just passing me out like a shiny new toy because I could explain that stuff. Yeah, I definitely don't regret learning film. I mean, that's something that not everybody gets to to do to load a yeah. camera in a in a you know in a bag where you can't see anything. I was also a thirty five millimeter projectionist, and uh, yeah, oh, it was wow. fun. It was fun yeah. working in a movie theater, you know, building those prints on Thursday nights. I I I remember all of those moments, and it's just yeah, it was great. <laughs> I, I remember watching the pops on the top right. You know, oh yeah, the it, yeah the the real changes. You have the cigarette the, burn there. The yeah. real changes. Yep. And I remember watching those as a kid, going, "What is that?" And then when I learned what it was, I was like, "Oh!" And then I couldn't. What I, I was always looking out for them. I always now, yeah. Those are the, those, those are the splicing points too. And I always used to. I was trained by an AFI uh, technician, and he would, you know, commercial films always had chemical splices, and they would create this little like line for one frame it was one frame but he was like just cut that one frame out and you'll remove that distraction and i always removed all the chemical splices from my prints yeah yep. <laughs> yep. um but yeah let's uh let's i don't I, I do want us to talk about you have a few uh, short uh form documentaries that you scored as well um you worked with director leo pfeiffer on one day you'll go blind which was yep. uh for the new yorker and body language for nowness um both mm -hmm. uh have uh dealing with skateboarding, but completely different. Uh, one is a story of a, a man who lost his sight and of course gained his confidence to get back on the skateboard. And another is someone who took their disability and turned it into this amazing, unique, original form of, of dance and movement. And both are just, uh, for anyone watching on YouTube or Facebook, I'll definitely put the links in the description, go watch them, they're, they're great uh, pieces. And um, But talk about working with Leo on these and having that kind of one director over these two different subjects. I love Leo. He's he's a young guy. He's a real go-getter. Um, I think he has a really cool voice and a, a really cool approach. He makes I, I describe his documentary documentaries as narrative documentaries because they almost feel like a narrative film rather than a documentary. Even though uh, most of what I've done with him are documentary shorts. Yeah. 
Um, and he finds these fascinating subjects. The very first film I ever did with him was called Lost Time. It was about a professional session drum player who had a stroke and lost his ability to play. And eventually he gets back to playing and he realizes he can't ever play professionally again, but he can still find love in playing, even though it's like he just can't get back in the pocket. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like he's lost he's lost his time. And that was a fact. So that's a fascinating. And then he found, you know, these guys that, with these incredible stories. So the, the skateboarder, One Day You'll Go Blind, is about this guy who was born with this degenerative disease. And as a kid, he knew one day he will go blind. And he is a skateboarder and he competes professionally and has some success at it until he can no longer see. And you yeah. go through his story and the aftermath of it and eventually him getting back up and saying, I'm going to get back on the skateboard. Um, and now he teaches other blind kids to skateboard. And it's yeah. so inspiring. Um, and the thing I love about Leo's films, also his taste in music and his style is it's never obvious. So we're always trying to find it. How do we do this in an interesting and unique way? And I'm always experimenting with sound and either creating my own sounds, which is not something I do very often. More often I take existing stuff and I layer it and then I throw plugins and things on it to modify it. But I'm not one of those guys that has a ton of patience to sit there and turn knobs and it's like, look, brand new sound. And um, I take existing stuff and then mess with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also don't mind using a preset that people recognize. Um, if I can use a piano and people recognize that, then what's wrong with using a known synth sound that people recognize as long as I'm using it well? Yeah, so that's absolutely. my approach. <clears throat> um, but with him, I'm always, it's, it, it, there's always a, a, an element of sound design, of finding things and creating new stuff, which pushes me in interesting directions. It's always an interesting mixture of electronic and live. Um, and so for One Day You'll Go Blind, for example, I recorded some really cool solo violin and some solo cello, but then I processed the crap out of it and when i wrote it um and this is having done a few films with him by now there's a level of trust which is wonderful i told him look the mock-up i'm just going to kind of noodle and give you an idea of what i'm going to do here but i'm going to have the player improvise and take this as a guide but then embellish and if it's awkward for a violin because I'm doing it on a keyboard, I'm going to let them change notes and make it more uh, idiomatic for the instrument. And then I'm going to process the hell out of it and it'll sound different than the mock-up. And what I love about Leo, he's like, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's the director you want. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's not about temp live. It's quite the opposite. It's like, I cannot wait for something new. Yeah. Um, and he tempts all of his own movies, and his temps are always really, really good. So it's like, oh, crap, how do I beat this? <laughs> <laughs> so th that was a really fun one to experiment with that. Um, it, it, he also tends to 
generally we don't have a strong theme or melody with his. The, like each cue tends to be its own thing. And how do I do that but still make it feel as if they belong together, even though I'm never repeating a melody or a theme is always challenging with him because it's sort of progressive rather than thematic. So how do you make that but make it still feel unified? Yeah. So that I love about his films. Um, um, and the, the Bill Shannon one, again, is this guy that has this condition with his hips where he can't really hold his own weight up. He has to use crutches. And he's developed this amazing sort of choreography dance thing that he does that almost looks like he's floating. Oh, it's crazy. Um, yeah. And they definitely check yeah, out that doc. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. And, and sometimes he's like using the skateboard and stuff. And it's like, it's just magic to watch. And it's the kind of thing where I wish I could have written the music and then let Leo cut to the music, but that never happens. And Leo was like, well, I need to make it work on its own. And so then I had to write the music to a dance that was done. And when I asked Leo, well, what's he actually dancing to? What's he listening to? And he's like, oh, he was listening to some hip hop. And I'm like, oh, but the score needs to bring in a, a kind of magic of what's happening that isn't hip hop. Like nothing wrong with hip hop, but it just... This needs to be score and yeah. feel it choreographed and feel like it goes with the movement. I mean, it felt like a movement piece. It felt the way <laughs> it worked and it the way it flowed. It was definitely like a more visual movement piece. Yeah. That one was crazy. And the, the other thing is usually with Leo, he gives me a good amount of time and there's a lot of back and forth. So it's not unusual with Leo because we'll tweak and tweak and tweak. And what you see is version seven or eight or nine or something like that. On the Bill Shannon one, because of the scheduled and working with Nowness, and then they moved, they said, oh, we want to release it at this time and everything. I had two days. Two days. Wow. Two days. <laughs> so the whole thing was, and I was working at the time. So it's like I wrote it one night and then he gave me notes and I made the changes the next night. And then at one point we're on Zoom with audio movers going through it and I'm making changes in real time with him, which is the magic of technology. And he goes, yep, that's it. Great. Print it. And I printed it. And a week later it was up on the site. That's insane. I mean, it was super fast. <laughs> um, that one was crazy fast and it was a lot to do. And by the way, I had written, I think, four versions you, you know, when he does the performance piece at the end at night in the park, I think I'd written like four completely different versions to it. Like I took, I did it, I took a stab at it. He's like, this is beautiful music. I really love it, but it's completely wrong. I'm like, oh, okay, let's hone it in. And then I did something different. He's like, okay, I love this about this, but it needs to be more. And it just, it took a few attempts to get it there. Um, and it was really, I think the third, I think it was like version five or six that's in the film, but there's really three completely different pieces of music that were written for there. And then a few tweaks on the third piece, all done in one night. That's insane. <laughs> that's, that's crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what those were like. Um, 
but I think they're really cool. And he always pushes me to do something different that's out of my comfort zone, which I really love. Yeah, it's a great piece. And, uh, and you know, people like, you know, like, those are the categories of the Oscars that maybe no one like the short form docs and stuff, but they're, they're great little pieces that that stand on their own and, and really hit emotional impact. And and this one is not terribly long or anything, but it, it, it just tells a story. It has visuals and movement and music and, it, and it's it's just engaging it's 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 really captivating yeah no it's uh, it, i love leah i think what he does is magical we, we did a short narrative a while back that um has still yet to see the light of day and he's constantly developing other projects i, I see a bright future for him he's a yeah. very smart young filmmaker he's very talented he's got a strong vision He's great to work with, um, you know, hopefully I will get to work with him for many, many years. Yeah, that sounds like a start of a great collaboration. So hopefully it continues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, then speaking of blind athletes, um, there's Legacy. Yeah, Legacy, the life of Canto uh, <laughs> Robledo. So yeah, right. that's another so fascinating documentary. Yeah. yeah. So apparently if you, if you have a documentary about a blind athlete, I'm your guy. <laughs> but this is the story. It's about a weird typecast, but. <laughs> so this is a Joe Farrow film that he um, produced. Um, I've done a few films that he's either director or, or produced. Um, and it's about this guy, Canto Robledo, who was a prize fighter back in the 30s and 40s, I think, something like that. And he lost his eyesight during a fight. Right. He had he was having some issues. His manager was like, you have to fight anyway. And during that fight, he became blind. Yeah. And after hitting his lows, he comes back from it and he decides to open a gym in Pasadena and train fighters. And he becomes known as a blind boxing coach and he gets his first champion. Um, you know, and, and again incredible stories of these people doing amazing things um and what i love about joe is he generally if he tempts it he's pretty much like ignore the temp do whatever you want and when we talked about the film for some reason like we wanted to give it a little bit of taste of the history um and yeah. we are talking sometimes about the 20s and 30s and 40s uh, so there's like one piece about the 20s that's total like, you know, banjo washboard and upright bass, you know, just yeah. fun. Yeah. But we wanted a theme, we wanted a sound, and we decided that this score needs to be basically a guitar score, and I'm not a guitar player. So that was an interesting challenge to write a guitar score when you're when that's not your instrument. Um, How did you uh, come to that? Because I was uh, one of my questions about it. It's like, you know, you have a character uh, or not a character, a subject who is essentially the character of the film, but it's a real person. And what about, you know, that subject made you or both of you gravitate so, towards guitar? Like what, what made you like, this is the perfect instrument to tell the story? We wanted an understated score that's minimal. One thing that I always try to do with the music is not lead. Mm. So... I don't want the music to tell you how to feel. I want the music to give you permission to feel how you want to feel. 
whatever that is. I, I, I hope that makes sense. No, it's yeah, like, you don't want to manipulate. I, I don't audience. want to tell yeah. you be sad here. I want to tell you it's okay if you're feeling sad now. Does that make sense? So yeah, hundred percent. The story is so again so impactful that having a bigger, more cinematic or electronic score or whatever just felt like it was too much. So it's like we wanted less. And because of the Mexican heritage and stuff, the guitar felt more appropriate than, say, a piano, which would have been much easier for me. And so that's how we ended up with the guitar. We wanted to give it a little bit of a Mexican influence in the melodies and the theme. Um, and when I wrote the stuff, I sent it to my guitar player and I was like, you know, does this work key wise and the way I'm doing it, like, will this all work on a guitar, you know? And um, I ran it by him. That's something I do a lot with players when I write for instruments, especially if it's something more soloistic. I, I run it by the players and get input um, and tweak accordingly. <clears throat> and that's how it ended up. And then with his first champion, which was in the late 80s or early 90s, I knew I wanted kind of a rock kind of a thing. And that that's all drums and guitars. It's like, oh, well, then that can connect. And then a guitar is a very emotional instrument. And I can go classical. I can go acoustic. I can go electric, bass guitar. And then just to give it that extra little judge for the bass, even though the stuff was pretty simple, I really wanted it to be in the pocket and feel. So I went for fretless bass and I called up my friend Matt Malley from Counting Crows. And I was like, hey, Matt, you want to play on my film score? He's like, sure. <laughs> so I send him the awesome. track. And he doesn't read music. He just listens to it and goes. So I'd send him the mock-up and I said, just listen to it and do your thing. It's like, you know, I, I just need your touch because Matt specifically tends to play a little bit behind the beat and he finds the pocket and there's this really laid back thing about how he plays and how he gets into a note and out of a note. And even though it was a very simple part, I knew that, especially when you have a simple part, you want that player that can really squeeze the max out of it rather than just there's a note, there's a note. Yeah. Do you know what absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> so for this, Matt was perfect. And I and when I wrote it, I was thinking about Matt. I'll do that too. You know, you've heard of writers say when they're writing a, a script, they have an actor in mind for a character. Sometimes when I write, I have a specific musician in mind to perform it. Absolutely. You had to write, yeah, writing for a specific <clears throat> um, performer. And and that was the case for that. Um, you know, it's like I, I knew exactly who I wanted to do it. And I checked in with him before I even wrote it to make sure he's on board. Because uh, if he had said no, then I would have probably written it a little bit differently for somebody else. And thankfully, I know lots of musicians. So even if one <laughs> says no, there's always somebody else. But um, yeah, I the way my brain works, I, I think of specific musicians often. And when I work, whether it's on my films or other people's films, even when we work with orchestras, 
when I work with um, contractors, I request specific players all the time. Um, because especially when you know their style, they know you and you've developed a relationship, there's a shorthand that comes with it where they see your notes, they see your music and they know what you're after. And boom, first take, magic. Second take, unbelievable. Third take, it's like you've been playing it for years, moving on. Yeah, you know? and it's and in, in this industry, that's the, that trust there, especially when you're on those tight deadlines, it's invaluable yep. to have that yeah yep so yeah i i have all these people that like i i will go to them specifically for specific things and if i can't get them and sometimes i can't it's very very sad <laughs> <laughs> like i it, it's a real bummer when you can't get the player you want and and sometimes you can't sometimes they're just not available yeah, um, if they're good, they're you're in demand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the good ones are. I mean, it's I've moved sessions in order to get the players that I want. I believe it. Yeah, and we have. You know, I'm doing Stargirl with Pinar in our next session. We're doing an evening session because in the time frame of when we need to do the session, there are other sessions going on, and I want the players that we want. So I was like, okay, we'll do an evening session so we can have our players rather than doing a daytime session with different players. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> like, they're the people who bring our stuff to life. Without it, it's a mock-up. It's an idea. It's dots and lines on paper. They're the ones that make it magic. So, yeah, it's to me, it's hugely important who's performing my stuff. Yeah, the musicians uh, that perform on scores, not just yours, every Pinar's, everybody's, they're, they're so yeah. talented. And they, and, and if being at a recording session is probably one of the most breathtaking things you can experience and seeing all that music come to life and seeing everyone who've been practicing their craft for their entire lives, just like almost like no effort at all, just bring this music to life. And it's, it's, it's magical. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's by far my favorite part. Like when, when you get to show up and other people bring the music to life, it, it is, like you said, it's magic. It really is. I don't know how they do it. They are superhuman. And usually they make it look easy, which is really not fair. <laughs> but it's the best. And how fortunate am I that uh, I get to work on a TV show where we score episodes, which not that many shows do that. There's a bit of a resurgence lately, so there's a few more of them, but still most scores don't get to do that. And even though I'm not composing on it, I'm on a score that gets to do that. How awesome is that? How awesome is it that I get to travel halfway around the world and I get to work at Air Studios at Abbey Road I've been to Memphis, I've been to Italy, I've been to China, I've been to Toronto, to Vancouver. You know, it's like this work has taken me all over the world, sometimes just to record with people and the people I've gotten to meet and work with and stuff. Just because I was foolish enough to pursue my hobby as my job, is it's <laughs> insane. It's like I, you know, if you ever wondered who the luckiest human being is on the planet, you're looking at him. 
you know it's like yeah and I, a, a same, same sentiment for me yeah same sentiment yeah, i mean like to chase I, that i i have a wife that loves me and supports me and puts up with the craziness of what this industry is because my schedule can change on a dime it can be very hard on a spouse um i have wonderful kids and i get to make music every single day of my life <sighs> yeah <laughs> well shy i mean you yeah yeah just to mention i mean you, if you work with pinar you've had a great relationship with pinar top rock who's a fantastic yeah, composer and, awesome. and you guys have the, the the lost city that's out in theaters you have star girl uh which is doing amazing and of course we just talked about the, the last of the winthrops one day you'll go uh, blind body language and legacy of the life of canto robledo and i know you're working on an album to for all of these and to combine with some of your shorter doc scores together so yeah i think i'm gonna end up having to do two albums because there's just too much stuff hey so, that's great that's I, more I for us <laughs> be, i think there's gonna be one of like leo pfeiffer movies and one of joe farrow projects um perfect <laughs> and then we're trying to do a soundtrack for last of the winthrops as well so hopefully there's going to be at least three albums coming out relatively soon fingers crossed i mean the the scores are, are fabulous and uh again you. i want to thank you for taking the time this evening or for your afternoon to to sit down and and chat and it's always a great pleasure to chat up a chat uh, catch up and it's just it was great to see you man it's great to catch yeah, up you thank you so much i really appreciate it it's so great talking with you